Thank you, Brian, for this very kind, kind words. I'm, I'm uh, humbled. Actually, in this season, I'm uh, learning to uh, be wrong and know nothing. Uh, really, I have a friend, a very, very dear friend. Uh, she's a prophetess and a seer. And every once in a while, she would say to me, well, people are envious of my gifting. And I'm like, they're idiots. Like, you need to be dumb to want that. Because uh, it's like a person is seeing, actually seeing into the spiritual world all the time. Like, she knows what's going on. I'm so, so happy not to know what's going on. Like, to have, like, little, maybe some hints here and there, great. Want to keep it that way. She knows. And we, uh, years ago, we spent uh, together many hours traveling around Australia, and we were driving everywhere, so it probably was about 50-plus hours altogether in the car, like, for two of us. And she would be like, oh, oh, we need to stop now. We need to stop now. We need to take communion now. I'm like, no, uh-uh, don't tell me. Uh-uh, just let's stop. Let's do what we need to do. We'll go on. Everything is great. So this friend of mine, I asked her once, I said, how do you even survive this calling? How you survive this intensity? And she's like, well, the only way to do it is to be uh, as childlike as possible and to stay a child, a little child of the Lord, that is what I am, nothing more, and very childlike. So whenever you can be silly, whenever you can be fully incarnated and enjoy food and sleep and a good hug, this is a great antidote to intensity. I think we're all living now in a greater spiritual intensity. And when people tell me, you know, it's going to get better, uh, we're going to just wait a little bit, it's going to get better. Or even a funnier phrase is going to go back to normal. <laughs> uh, I'm like, no, no, uh-uh, no. It's not going to get better. It's not going to go back to normal. Uh, the normal was not good. So it's okay, say goodbye to normal. Uh, it's going to get really, really very uncomfortable for a while. But... It's going to get glorious, and it's going to get exciting. And people who don't know yet in their spirits with certainty that he's coming back will know it. And you are the Maranatha people, the Maranatha church, and it's written on your, at the entrance, uh, it will be written in your hearts. It's going to be written in your flesh. You're going to live it. Because that would be the way for us to survive. Is to become Maranatha. <laughs> and this call has a bit of a masochistic twist to it. Because the worse it gets, the better it is. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And especially for us in the West, and even though I live in Israel, which technically is Middle East, but the mentality there is very Western. We made comfort an idol. It's our idol. I'm um, like at, at some, uh, some way back, I remember one 
one congregation here in America, they asked me to talk about the uh, American idols, because they've heard me say something like that, and like, talk to us about American idols. And, um, and I, I did, you know, like how in psychology you're told to sandwich bad news, like you go, you are awesome, but I'm going to fire you, but you're going to have a wonderful career somewhere else. You're going to sandwich it. So, so that's how I delivered that, that message. I was like, oh, but I'm joking now. I wasn't joking back then. The contribution of American church to worship and evangelism is unprecedented. American church has changed the face of the earth. It's changed the way people worship everywhere. And you guys think that what like happened this morning on stage is normal? And like, no, it's not normal. I know that those of us who are mis we're missionaries and traveled around, we know this, not normal. This is extraordinary. And people just come on stage and they bring this extraordinary presence. And this is how American church told other believers in other countries to worship. It's amazing. And uh, the, the evangelistic effort, like I became, uh, I came into the kingdom because of the efforts of Campus Crusade for Christ. Yay, they're not even called that anymore, but <laughs> back then, <laughs> that's what it was. And so many people, like you'll go to an international uh, conference of some sort, like I, I've been to a conference in Hong Kong, when then people were asked from all, like they were like, 2,000 of missionaries, and they were asked if those of them who came to faith through young life to stand up, and there was like one-third of the room. So that is amazing. That's the top part of the sandwich. Comfort, fun, and convenience. Oh, my gosh. And then you put freedom on top, and you would say, no, Mariana, freedom is a godly thing. It's not, it's not an idol. Oh, you can make it into an idol. And you put in these, in top, kind of in the middle of the sandwich, and this is why it's going to be so uncomfortable. And I tr put myself in the Western world framework because these are also my values. I like, uh, I like my freedoms. I love to talk about human rights. The Bible doesn't talk about human rights. And I like to, talk, to feel comfortable. I like to sleep in a good, wide bed. And I like the temperature to be just so. And I was traveling in, this, in Siberia, and these women invited me to stay with them. One of them slept in a bathtub. Because for me to have a bed, she had to sleep in a bathtub. She didn't think much of it. It was like, well, so no, no biggie. Uh, like, yeah, of, co of course we have room to host you. In my book, if I need to sleep in a bathtub, there's no room to host you. You go somewhere else. <laughs> you know, comfort. Personal space. Yeah, I love my personal space. And you know, when I travel in America, I... Um, it takes me about two weeks to realize that my personal space increased. And, and if I pass anywhere in the vicinity of a person, I need to apologize. 
Like anywhere close. And it takes a little time and I stop being rude. And then I get back home and then someone is like in my face. And I'm like, what's up with that? That's my personal space. Well, all of, all of those things are our little idols, and I think they're going to be coming down. And as they will be coming down, we'll be kicking and screaming. But I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not simplifying the matter just to those things. I'm just kind of trying to start lightheartedly with little jokey kind of things. And then to go into something else. When um, the whole pandemic business started, and here, uh, disclosure, I'm not a scientist I was horrible at science. I, I am pretty smart and I have good, good common sense. So this is where, where I'm coming from. And I hate conspiracy theories. Um, it's probably because I was born in Soviet Union in a family of two dissidents. And whenever I feel propaganda, I break out in hives. It's like allergic reaction. And conspiracy theories come wrapped in propaganda. The same way exactly like the government brainwashing comes in propaganda, the other side comes in propaganda. So when someone presents to me one clear option, like you're either a blooming idiot or this is what you need to believe, it's propaganda. And I'm like, eh, So when this whole thing started, the conspiracy theory volume that started coming at us. I think it's quieted down a little bit because people settled down. It was unbelievable. Like every morning in my email would be like 10 emails from people, you must watch it. You must read this. You have to. This is going to just fill your life with meaning. And I sat down and I said, Lord, what is this about? What's going on? And he said to me, this is a practice pandemic. I'm not downplaying the suffering. There is great suffering. Uh, I'm not saying it's nothing. It is something. But I'm saying the enemy is practicing something. The governments are practicing something. We have to start practicing something. We have to see what's going when to... When the volume will be turned up, how do I respond? What are the things I value? What do I need to defend? What changes do I need to make if this is going to continue and become worse? How can I accommodate it for myself, for my children, for my family, for my community, for people who are interested in me? They're going to try, uh, try, like something is trying to push us. We can, some of us try to push back. So basically we're figuring out how this thing works. So the Lord said it's a practice pandemic. And, and, and then uh, later on I, was, I kept asking him and he said, uh, I've asked him like what's the most important thing? What should I do? What should I do? Where should I focus? And what I heard from the Lord was hope, that the most important thing for this season is hope. Uh, it's, and, it's, and again, I'm not trying to simplify matters, but I, what I felt is with every video I watched, I had less hope. And people were saying, oh, this is going to just enlighten you, and you're going to just know things. Let's hope. And I said, no, I want to be stupid. I want to be stupid. I want to stay, stay simple. I want to limit the things I know to the basics. 
And if that will preserve my hope, that's going to be all worth it. And I'm going to function on need-to-know basis, and I will listen to God. And I, would, uh, and I know that sometimes I will listen to God and I'll be wrong, because n- none of us are super-duper accurate. Even my friend the seer, every once in a while she'll be like, this is what's going to happen, and it's not happening. So sometimes we're going to be wrong. But I will find my protection in that that I was wrong trying to listen to him. So if he tells me get vaccinated, I'll get vaccinated. If he'll tell me to drink poison, I'll drink poison. (laughs) But it doesn't matter. If he would tell me, like I will walk very, very carefully. If he will say, you move out of the city and start a community somewhere rural, I'll do it. Just very carefully walking in the season. And now we still have grace for this training, for this practice to see how we're listening to him, what steps we need to make. Be very, very careful. And um, I know that for me personally, I don't know how it is for you, but for me personally, one of the greatest weapons the enemy uses against me is arrogance. So I strictly forbid myself to think less of others. And whenever I feel like, how can you even think that? And of, co- of course, you know, like sometimes someone says something so silly, you end up laughing about it. But you don't break fellowship with people. You don't break fellowship with people on account of you being right and them being wrong. There has to be a more solid guideline to it. And you definitely don't break fellowship with people on account of them being annoying because you're going to be left alone on an inhabited island by the end of this process. And I think very often we do so, especially here in America when you have so many choices. You have a church per block. So if this church, someone annoys you, you can try another church. Uh, Don't break fellowship, this is it. (laughs) Well, uh, if you think this was a message, it was not. I didn't even get there, but... uh, I don't normally do this, but I did this to Gary. So I, this goes into, I want to say something that, because like, I feel like God tends to say similar things to us at similar times. I was reflecting this week about, and I don't, it just popped in my head when I was praying. And then I started thinking about it all week and praying about it. And I was like, yeah, why do we do this? And this is, and it was this idea that like when I'm trying to seek, you know, cause I have a lot of friends that are Christian people from different backgrounds. And I was like, well, they're one of them I pray with every week and, he sees things very differently on a theological level, you know, and I and we pray every week, you know, and so I'm very aware of the fact that he's seeking God. He's just seeing some things differently than I am, you know, and it's in like every week we're reading and every week we're praying and every, you know, and I'm kind of like, okay, he's seeking God. We're just not seeing things the same way on this issue or that issue. And generally speaking, they don't matter so much, but even when they do, you know, we've had to sort that out. But it dawned on me this one thing that, um, like she was saying, we all see in part, we all prophesy in part, we all know in part, and I'm responsible for my life and my family and this kind of thing. Why is it that when I feel that God clearly leads me to do something, which, like, again, like, there are boundaries, like we talked about things, like when God's like, here's ten commandments. You don't get to hear God tell you to murder someone, you see what I'm saying? Like, you know what I mean? Like, we have lists <laughs> we can work from that are universal, 
And there's, there's a decent amount of that, and we should talk through that. But then there's going to be a, an amount of things that are part of my life, or part of your life, part of everybody's life here, that aren't in any of these lists. And they're particular to us. And the way God is called, so there's a good chance that God could call Mariana to do something that I am never, ever called to do, and he called me to do something else. Now, we're comfortable with that if we're talking about, like, ministry. You know, like, well, she's going to go pray for these homeless people, and I'll go pray for these people over here. It's like, well, whatever, you know. But I was thinking about it in the context of living, and I've noticed this pattern among other believers. And so I was thinking, why do we do this? And it's this. I feel that I've prayed, I saw the Lord, I'm doing this, humility, this whole thing. I've come to this conclusion about me and my life. And I could just say, that's good. This is right. But we tend to have to make that true for everyone. I don't know why that's the case. Because it isn't, probably. And the whole thing we should remember is we're wrong a lot. <laughs> and we're, we're stupid about things a lot. You know? So why do you think all of a sudden, because you've worked this whole thing out, or I've worked this whole thing out for my life, and it's like, this is good. And even, even weirder, it started to think about, like, I just prefer this. Like, I like singing this song more than that song. You know what I mean? Like, take God even out. I just like this. So I have to now say, this song is more anointed, or this song is more blessed, or this kind of, it's like, I was just thinking, you know, if we would just somehow find a way to cut that whole section of thinking off. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's humility is really what it was you were getting at. But anyway, I just wanted to say amen, but from a kind of a, we're on the back sort of way. You, you're welcome. That's a new experience for me. It's a tag team preaching. <laughs> I think I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I want to actually jump to, into something that is tr- absolutely 100% true for all. And this is the, the hope. You know, in, I've noticed that in the body of Messiah, we love to use this word. This is our, one of our buzzwords. And we say hope is important. Hope is never uh, disappoints. Hope is this, hope and that. I found very few people who actually know what the biblical hope is. Really. And it sounds funny, but uh, it's, I, only once I've heard it taught, and then it, cha- it literally changed my life. And I was studying it and praying on it and meditating on it ever since almost daily. Um, when we say hope in the Bible, there is a hope and there is the, the hope. And a hope, there are many, many hopes. And we're living now in the times of disappointing hopes. Like all the time. So if I'm kind of assuming that any hope will not disappoint it's very dangerous path for my heart. I can hope that one morning I'll just wake up and I would be skinny and tall. That would be a very, very disappointing hope. The hope does not disappoint. It does not disappoint. And I think our task is, and it's getting more and more necessary, more and more imperative right now for us to plug all of us into that so that when everything else is failing, that hope is still so strong in our heart that we are not undone. 
And I want to talk about this hope, and I want to start with um, t uh, Titus 2, 11, 13. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Uh, and uh, this passage is saying that the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Yeshua Messiah. The grace appeared, and the grace is teaching us, not law, the grace is teaching us to live godly life in this present age as we wait with everything we got for the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. That is the second coming. That's the appearing of his glory. And sometimes we, when we read this, we think, oh, appearing of his glory is when we have a really, really nice worship service on Sunday. No, no. it's not even close. It's not even a vicinity. It's a tiny, tiny little taste that he drops on the tip of our tongue to keep us going. That glory that sometimes we're like, whoa, tiny, tiny little drop, the actual full revelation of his glory is his appearing. And this is the first point that is what constructs the actual substance of our hope is the coming of the king. That's number one, the coming of the king. That's, that's what we hope for, the coming of the king. The revelation of his person. The revelation of him as he is. And the verse that I want to give you with this is 1 John 3, 2. And, um, and it says, dear friends, now we're children of God. And what we will be has not yet been known. But we know that when Messiah appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We're living in a time of perpetual identity crisis. And this is all also not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. Like uh, uh, the other day at dinner, Brian was talking about that like when, when, when we were little, my generation, I'm almost 50, I, we knew that I'm a girl, this, this person is a boy. That was clear, like I didn't need to figure it out. Today, the kids are taught that this is something to figure out. The very foundational things we knew that human being is made by God. Uh, like those of us who are believers, right now, even believing children, like that I work with, kids, youth, they don't know that because you can also make a human being cloned or you can make them in a little glass bowl. There are several options that can be, you know, there's things that can be done with life. There are certain things that were given that are not given anymore that had to do with our identity. And it's only going to get worse. And also us, we think, okay, but I know who I am. I'm a child of God. I have to admit, I'm at times very confused child of God. I'm a, a woman in ministry. Uh, I'm not 100% sure about the scriptures that actually say that women are not supposed to teach. And I've heard millions of explanations. I, I'm not sure about it. 
but I am called to teach, and I'm standing here in front of you teaching, and that's a little bit confusing. And then uh, there are other things that are coming on top and here and there, and I'm Jewish, but I also was born in Russia, and I'm Israeli, but I cul- I'm culturally as Israeli as any of you uh, because I, I grew up in a very different culture until I was 24 years old, and m- most of the things, daily things around me are counterintuitive for me. So all of that is the identity crisis. And here we're talking about the hope of the appearing of our king that will solve it once and for all. We will look at him and we will be like, wow, that's it, complete integration. No conflict, no internal conflict whatsoever. I know who I am. I know what I'm called for. I know why I was made. I know why every single painful thing happened to me in life. I know why the glory. I know why I prayed. I could see it all. I know who I am because I know who you are fully. Because even now we're guessing. And we're guessing, each of us, to the best of our abilities. And like Brian was saying, you know, we can figure it out and we can say the Messiah is this. And then run around trying to convince everybody that we are absolutely right. I'm sure when we see him face to face, we would be like, oh. It's that what we're hoping for. He will appear and we will know. And our identity would be solid in the appearance of our king. And this is what we're waiting for, the appearance of the king. The, other th- the second thing we're waiting for is the coming of the kingdom, the revelation of the kingdom. And I know last time I was here, I was talking to you about the kingdom of Jew and Gentile together in one person and one new man. That is the kind of kingdom Yeshua bought on the cross. That is the kind of kingdom that is going to be revealed. And people that are sort of assuming that it might be true, and we're also kind of assuming how it's going to look like, It will happen. So we're not talking about some purely spiritual metaphysical manifestation. We're talking about actual place, actual time, actual person, actual people. And the scripture says that you are all a part of that that inheritance. You are all included in that number. You're brought into Israel. You're not Jewish. I've I've heard Gentiles say it to me, because of Abraham, I'm now Jewish. To be Jewish, you need to be son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just Abraham. But you are children of Abraham. That brings you into the kingdom, into the commonwealth of the greater Israel. That is the kingdom coming down. It will be revealed. As the king appears, the kingdom will become apparent. And everything we're longing for, and when we feel, look at the injustice, when we look at the uh, sin in this world, when we look at the darkness coming, when we look at all of those things, everything we're longing for will be fulfilled in that kingdom. We will see it. It doesn't mean that right now we should just quietly see, sit and endure all the injustice in the world and never raise our voice and never do anything about it. This is not what I'm saying. You do what you're called to do. But the ultimate solution for everything 
is coming in the revelation of the kingdom. And we are now citizens of this kingdom. And the verse that I wanted to bring you with this is Zechariah 2, 11, 13. And I'm sorry, I'm so used to read it out loud, so you have to do the sort of a Russian girl reading stuff to, to English speakers, but here is this, this, these beautiful verses. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord on that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord shall inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again, be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has risen himself from his holy dwelling. I think we're living in this season when he is rising it from his holy dwelling, and we will, well, at least some of us in this room, I believe, will see the kingdom come. That's what I believe, that some of us in this room will actually experience it, that things are going to speed up. They're going to go even faster, even more dramatic. We will need to brace ourselves to hold on, and some of us will see that kingdom coming. We are, so this is the second point. We're hoping for the coming of the king and the coming of the kingdom. And we belong to this kingdom already. So when someone, uh, this was something that I shared with Marion and Steve. It was a funny experience. I am not, I, I don't watch news much. From kind of not much to not at all. Kind of that is my bracket. <laughs> Uh, a friend of mine years ago told me that everything you need to know will find you. And it does. <laughs> and I, so I don't want to watch the news. And if I do hear the news, these are not American news. So I'm not immersed into American politics, not whatsoever. So when, um, when the elections were happening here, and I would pray, not, not for elections, I would just go, like I have this, this practice of uh, like, uh, at least several times a day, I, uh, a week, I do contemplative prayer. So I just sit quietly for an hour, basically, or for however long I have grace for. Uh, so I'm sitting quietly. I'm feeling kind of going deep into the spirit. And then I would hear this voice in my, in my heart, mind, whatever the organ is that hears God. Uh, and the voice said to me repeatedly, uh, George Soros who? And then it laughed. And I would be like, huh? Because I, I never think about George Soros. This is not something that I like, you know, like I, I don't contemplate those things. And I knew that this is the Lord. And he jokes with me very often. So I kind of understood the joke because he was saying to me like, Ugh, you know, pfft. like this is small. This is an old small deal. I don't care about them. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't let other people worry about it. It's like what George Soros who? He's God of the universe. So literally, George Soros who? But <laughs> and, and if any of you love George Soros and think he's a wonderful man, I apologize. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, he's a man. But basically, the point is, it's, like, it's, not, it's not whether he's lovely or horrible. It means that no matter how powerful he is, he's not powerful. We are citizens of the kingdom. So yes, yes, harder things are coming. And yes, it seems like some kind of totalitarian 
sort of one world structures arising up. That's what it seems to me. And the countries that are not really easily inclined to go that way have their own evil going on, like Russia, Iran, some others. It seems like something evil is brewing. It's not my kingdom. My kingdom is still coming. And it's so much more powerful, global, wealthy, than whatever is cooking right now, that it, there's nothing here that can threaten it in any way, shape, or form. The only thing that is scaring us is suffering. Because we human beings, we're afraid of suffering. If we were not afraid of suffering, we would have been all rejoicing now. But we are, so we have to endure. But coming of the king, coming of the kingdom. The third thing, coming of all things new. That's what we're waiting for. And I know that uh, my hipster friends and younger, uh, believers and non-believers, they have this incredible passion for environment, for this planet. I respect people with passion. Even if I don't completely share it, I, I, I would rather have around me people who are passionate than people who are not passionate. Uh, the, uh, and, and with this coming of all things new, like I know my um, uh, sister-in-law, actually former sister-in-law, she is an animal rights activist. And she would go on and on and on and on about how it is our fault like the suffering of animals is the fault of humanity and we need to do something about it. She's right. She's 100% right. Every garbage cat in Israel is suffering because of me, because of my sin. Should, would I do something about it or not? It's a different question. That's, the Lord needs to speak into my heart. Very He might. So far, my mom is the, the responsible for that one. She is a bona fide cat woman, and she feeds like maybe 500 street cats. There are many of those in Israel, because uh, she is moved with compassion. And I was always m making fun of her. And at one point, the Lord said to me, stop doing that, because the, what she feels is actually real. Like what fuels her passion is this, is, the, is part of the hope for all things being made new, for restoration. And here we have a very famous verses from uh, Romans 8, 18, 21. I consider that our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Remember when children of God are revealed, right? We will see him face to face, like now we're just uh, children of God, but when we see him face to face, we will know who we really are, full revelation for the children of God. So the whole creation is waiting for it. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated 
from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This is what we're waiting for. We don't know how it's going to look like. I've never heard a sermon about that. But that is foundational. Paul talks about it a lot. The scriptures talk about it. Even like in Genesis, we already hear it. Adam and Eve fall and the earth starts producing garbage. Things that were not created by God, that were create product of our sin. We, this, the creation is suffering, the creation is waiting, Yeshua will come, and he will make all things new. And this is part of our hope, the coming of the king, the coming of the kingdom, all things being made new. And the fourth thing, which is in the last thing on my list, but it's not the last thing in priority. And I said, like, I'd never heard anyone preach about everything being made new, the creation. I've actually never in my life heard a sermon on that subject. And that subject is foundational. And Paul dedicates, like, half a book of Ephesians to that. And that's resurrection from the dead. We don't talk about it because it's confusing. We don't know how it can be. It's, it's counterintuitive to us because we are mortal beings. So we kind of all geared towards, towards death. We also, I think, uh, miss the point when we preach the gospel and in some way, and I'll explain how I see it, and that kind of gospel was preached to us, which is Genesis, the fall, and then you kind of jump over the whole Bible, and you are in the book of John. And whatever happened there in the middle is, for our evangelism message, is irrelevant. And in the middle, we have the body flesh. We have incarnation. We have choosing the man, choosing the family, choosing the nation, building the kingdom, failing the kingdom, finding solution, redeeming the kingdom so that the kingdom can exist. It's all in the middle. So when we throw it away, we have a very metaphysical way, way of faith, very um, un, uh, not incarnated way of faith, very spiritualized. And also, it doesn't talk about the second coming because we feel, oh, you know, they don't believe in God, they don't understand. So that is also not happening. So what we are preaching is you sinned, God sent his son, the son redeems you, you become a better human being, and you hold on until you die, and then good things will start happening to you. It's a very hard pitch to sell because we hate dying. It's not, it's not something our body wants. It's not something, and when Paul says, you know, uh, death would be a gain to me, what he means is like being with the Lord is a gain. I'm sure he doesn't mean separating from his flesh and actual physical dying is going to be fun. But uh, our instincts 
self-preservation instincts that are very basic in us. We don't like to die. So the message that culminates in death and then something else that we don't really know about, not great. The message that culminates in the kingdom, like you are becoming a member of the kingdom. God from the beginning is trying to build a kingdom. He cannot build the kingdom with unsanctified man. So he needs to sanctify you so that you can be the member of the kingdom and you can function and you can do things and your life here and continually will be for the kingdom in fullness. You will use your gifts. You will use your talents. You'll be active. This sort of image, like you go to heaven and you sing all the time, I think the musicians among us probably think it's wonderful. The rest of us think it's boring. And nothing about the kingdom is boring. Like the coolest people you ever dreamt of knowing. Like you can go walk up to C.S. Lewis and say, by the way, when you said this, this really impacted me back then, you know, there in the flesh. Uh, and glorified bodies. You know, Paul says that this is the completion, the fulfillment of our salvation. So we are all kind of an incomplete salvation right now because this flesh is still unredeemed and it's going to rot and it betrays us all the time. When it's redeemed, that's the whole, the work of salvation is complete. That's when it's complete. So this is a huge deal, a huge deal. And this is, the par this is part of our hope. And let's go to 1 Corinthians. This is my last, uh, not last, actually, one before last passage for today. And, and it's one of my favorites. And this is, you know, like one of the things, one of my um, greatest mentors in my life, Father Peter Hawken, he said to me years ago when I said, but I don't understand. And he said, oh, that doesn't matter. It's actually really, it doesn't matter. Because this, this, it just gives me goosebumps every time I read it. I have no idea, like, how? But here it is. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah, Maranatha. Maranatha. And don't come to me after this and don't ask me, but what about uh, those who will be resurrected first and those who will be resurrected second and people waiting here and there? I have no idea. I have no idea. What I know is the trumpet will sound and we will rise. And there will be glorified flesh. I don't know the train schedule for it. I don't think anybody does. I just, I'm just willing to sit on the station until it comes. And the important thing while we sit on the station is to keep, a, keep, keep the excitement. Not let us go, oh my gosh, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and he's not coming. It's, 
No, uh-uh. I'm willing to be cynical about the governments of the world. I am not willing to be cynical about this. He is coming back. Maranatha, he's coming back. And this is the hope. This is the hope. In the coming of the king and the coming of the kingdom and all things being made new and resurrection from the dead, this is the hope. And this is the hope of the church and this is the hope of Israel. They don't know coming back, but they know coming. This is our hope together. It's the same. The hope of the church and the hope of Israel are those things. And when everything else is coming down, and when I am uncomfortable and need to sleep in the bathtub in the best case scenario, (laughs) whatever else might happen, he is coming back. He's coming back. And we've prayed about that. Remember like 10 years ago, everywhere is like, shake what, whatever can be shaken, shake whatever can be shaken. We were all praying that. I think Misty Edwards started the trend. It's shaking. So why aren't we more excited? It's shaking. He is coming back. This is, this is our hope. It's not going to shame. It's not going to shame. And I'm so envious of, this, of the young children among us. They did get a very hard um, season to live in. That's true. It's hard. It's confusing. It's, oh my gosh, like things that we didn't even think about are now becoming such a huge challenge. But you, I see him face-to-face, you might actually be drawn into working with him, partnering with him, cooperating with him as the things draw near and closer and the battle gets stronger. He will give you the matching anointing and matching glory and matching joy and matching faith proportionate to the matching struggle. But it's true for all of us, too. He will give us the matching grace and the matching increase in every way so that he can sustain us in the days to come. And I want to finish by inviting you to pray with me. I want to ask those of you who feel that you want that hope to grow and to be more uh, active and more determining of your actual everyday life, that you want that hope to actually become not, like become who you are, part of your identities. Those of you who feel that way, please stand up. And you don't have to. Like, really, seriously, it's fine. If that's not something that is stirring, please don't feel pressured. Um, I want us to do one thing. I, you know, in Hebrew, Maranatha is Maranatha. It's actually not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. It's the, say, the same word. So I want us to say together, Maranatha, come Lord Yeshua. Would you be okay with that? So we're going to go one, two, three. Maranatha, come Lord Yeshua. One, two, three. 
Maranatha, come Lord Yeshua. Lord, I pray for this people. I pray with this people. I pray for us. Here we are. We're the small portion of your bride. And we are under attack from the world. And our greatest protection, our greatest strength, our greatest weapon is the blessed hope of your glorious appearance. And I pray, Lord, that you would make this hope who we are. You know, the brother here asked, how can the world know how great you are, our God? May people who look at us will know you are great. May people who look at us will know their fear, because a hope casts out any fear. It's an antidote to fear. Is this hope, Lord, may in the world, the suffering, crying, a struggling world, look at us and say, wow, what is this light? And this light is hope. This light is hope of your return. Make us the ambassadors of your hope. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And I pray specifically for the young people in this room, for the young, younger and the youngest. I pray, Lord, that the, I pray, Lord, that whatever is my ceiling will become their floor. I pray, Lord, that the greater wages will be given to them. I pray, Lord, that everything we labored for the harvest would be a stepping stone for them into your glory. I pray the increase of the anointing for them. And I thank you, Lord, and I also ask for your protection. I pray that your little cubs, the lion cubs, will stay protected, safe, defended in this season. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Amen.